We get into the church going thing and putting on our Sunday best and, and living a certain way or at least trying to show a good front, right? Let's all put the nice things on Facebook so everybody gets jealous of our life, right? Not the raw, yucky stuff like, had a terrible fight with my wife today. You don't find that on Facebook, right? But that might have been what happened to you today when you meet with God and try to worship Him in spirit and truth. So, it's not just a nice exercise to, oh, let's find the playlist of heaven and find a few psalms here or there. The big overarching thing is for you to use this as a way to commune, to learn and to live with God himself. And you may very well be in a place of exile, disconnected, not really resonating with anything spiritually in your life right now. We said in the Psalms, on the playlist of heaven, that there's different categories. There's wisdom Psalms about teaching and guidance. There's royal Psalms. And we're going to look at one today that are actually not just uh, messianic experiences, but talking about the kings of the world. There's lament songs that are cries for deliverance. There are imprecatory songs where uh, David calls out for God to bring judgment and justice. There's thanksgiving psalms of gratefulness. There's pilgrimage songs that they would sing or they would read or recite on road trips, the journeys that they would take. And then there's enthronement songs, psalms, God's majesty, his rule, and his care. Now, last week we took Psalm 1. And we took Psalm 1, like the video uh, the Bible Project just represented, because it's part of the introduction to the big deal the overarching picture. And so today, I felt to myself, well, I can't really um, just jump into any particular psalm. I think we need to finish the introduction to the psalms. And so we're going to look at Psalm 2 today. But Psalm 1 and 2 sort of go together, and there's a reason seemingly that they package them together. So last week, we looked in Psalm 1, and it just simply said this, "'Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked.'" or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So in Psalm 1, if you could sum it up, you could just simply sort of say that you need to make sure you're not sucked into the world, but that you need to soak your roots in to the scriptures of God and meditate upon it. And that's not a fly-by-night, oh, I read it, I covered, but to think about it, reflect on it, even memorize it, go around murmuring it, which is behind the word meditate. Do you allow it to get into you, not just in a cognitive level, but to really take your delight in the word of God? All of us have studied for an exam or a test, right? 
And uh, I had a daughter that did that uh, driver's permit kind of thing this week. And so she was worried going in. Do I got it all down? Got it all down? Got it all down? I'm like, I hope you do. And she did. She passed. I was happy for her. And I'll deal with all the other outfall of that in six months when she actually can get behind a wheel. And so, um, but, you know, whenever you have a test, you're like consumed with just getting it so you can do rote memory and put it back. That's not what you need to do with the Psalms. That's not meditating on God's word day and night. You need to soak your roots down into it and let it sort of, you know, simmer and and, and just process within you. What does that phrase mean? Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. Hmm, chaff. We talked about that last week. What does that mean? So many times, friends, we don't get to experience and worship God in spirit and truth because we don't have a serious devotion to spend time with him, whether behind the curtain, in his word, on a walk. The Holy Spirit of Jesus wants to commune with you and I, and he will never disappoint. Oh, there'll be days, I know, weeks, maybe you had one of those where you feel like, you know, your prayers don't get any further out of the house than the ceiling, and it stops. But if you choose to take the time to seek the Lord and meditate on His Word and soak your roots down into who He is and all that He upholds, you will meet with Him, and it will be an incredible experience. You're going to find Him real and rich and deeper and bigger and broader, more supportive and more loving and champing your life more than you ever thought. It's not like the Wizard of Oz when you go behind the curtain and you're all disappointed. God Almighty, through His Spirit, because of what Jesus Christ has done, can minister into your life. But yet we just blow through one week after another after another sometimes without taking that time to be in His presence. And so Psalm 1, as an introduction to Psalm, is challenging us to meditate on God's Word and to be wise of the way of the wicked, the world, to not be sucked into the ways of the world, but to be soaked into God's Word. It goes on then throughout Psalms, and it's going to be broken down, the Psalm that we're going to look at in Psalm 2, into these sections. There's actually four stanzas that you can look at for Psalm 2. The first is the voice of the nations, then the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, and the voice of the Spirit Himself. You're taking this Psalm, Psalm 2, and breaking it down into four sections, four stanzas with three verses each. You ready? Let's pray. Lord, this morning, through Your Spirit, We pray that we would meet with you, that we would have a delight in your word, that we would open up our spirits no matter what this week has meant to us or been uh, a challenge or maybe it's filled with joys, but that these moments that we look into Psalm 2, you would speak to us through your spirit. You would instruct us in truth and we would worship you in spirit and truth, that we would find our communion with you one of blessedness. So Lord, take these moments in Psalm 2 for us to meet with you in your presence. Amen? Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire 
and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against the anointed. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So that's where we're going to start and we're going to pause right there. This word, why do the nations conspire? In other translations, it talks about why do the nations rage? In fact, this very statement is quoted by the disciples in Acts chapter 4. If you want to turn in Acts chapter 4, it's interesting also that the first two psalms that are listed in the book of Psalms and the Psalter are not identified with an author. But through the Holy Spirit in Acts 4, the disciples of Jesus actually tell us who wrote Psalm 2. Psalm 2 being a messianic or royal psalm that we're going to see here is one that's the most quoted in the New Testament. And so in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23, you will find these words. On their release, Peter and John, they were in prison because of their faith and proclamation of the faith, went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then in verse 25, it says this, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. And part of you wants to go, okay, I know what you're going to talk about here, but there's no author on that. But through the inspiration of the Spirit, passed down word of mouth through the years, or maybe they pulled David's name off of it when they stuck that psalm at the beginning to be the introduction to all the psalms. But they knew this was a psalm of David himself. And he says in here, and it's this different translation, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So, did you know that David was not only a king? David was, was, was not only an artist. He sang, he played the harp, he created music, he wrote so many of these songs. But David was also a prophet. And so when David spoke and wrote out Psalm 2, he was speaking prophetically about Jesus Christ in this psalm, and they took it then in Acts 4, and they reflected back on that psalm, which was, you know, a thousand years prior, and then they looked at their own world, and they said, huh, Psalm 2 is sort of lining up with things that are happening right now, a thousand years later. Well, when David originally wrote it, he had no idea of Yeshua, Jesus coming. They longed for a Messiah, yes. They looked forward to uh, the temple of the Messiah, as the introduction said in the video. But David was writing because of the, the environment, the culture of his day that day. So there were kings that were raging and nations that were against Yahweh, against God. And so here's a psalm for all time. It related to the Davidic kings in Jerusalem, but... There's this foreshadowing that then is picked up in the New Testament by the disciples at that time that said, hey, wait a second here. David was speaking prophecy. 
And that prophecy is fulfilled. Look at Herod. Look at Pontius Pilate. Look, look at the other Jews. People are conspiring together to come against Jesus, the anointed one. And now here we sit 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later from this Acts passage, but 3,000 years later from the Davidic Psalm of Psalm 2. And it applies to our world today. So many times we think that we're in this new place in history, but we're really not. History sort of repeats itself, and this psalm speaks to it. But it also doesn't just speak about history repeating itself. It speaks about the hope that we have living in history in our day and age in 2019. So they looked at it that way in Acts 2. How would we look at it when we come back to it? Why do the nations conspire? Why do they rage? And the people's plot in vain. You know, it's almost like David here is, he's mystified. You ever sit back and scratch your head about your world? And it doesn't have to be the world at large. It may be your workplace. It may be how people relate in the cubicles around you. Or what's happening when you're on your commute and there's people driving around you that don't seem to be very considerate, Right? We contemplate, we think about what's going on. That's good. You're built with a a human soul. You should contemplate and meditate on things. But here's David just sort of mystified. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the nations rage? Why do people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord, against his anointed. What's the deal? Why does everybody have a hard time with God? God? God's not that bad. Now, some people, you know, no, don't believe in God. They just, hey, we're here by chance, right? And there's really no ultimate purpose. And, and you try to live that way, and you can live and function at some level that way, but you still have these gnawing questions inside of you. It's because we were built to be in relationship with the one who created us. And David's he's trying to reflect on this and look at the problems of his day. Why is this happening? These people that he's thinking about that are around him in his day, And the people that Peter and John were thinking about when they reused the psalm in Acts 4, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. What's really going on with our world around us? And what can I do to be able to not only survive, but to thrive? Some of you may have known this week that uh, the G20 summit happened. And... uh, Osaka, Japan. Any of you people, news people? You stay up on these things? G20, I used to know, what's G20, right? So there are nations that come together. It's a financial conference. And so they all met together this week and they they sort of started to discuss things of financial matters. Do you know who the G20 are? Here are the nations in G20. Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Republic of Korea, Republic of South Africa, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, United Kingdom, United States of America. And then the 20th is a representative of the European Union. 20 of them and some of their representatives all standing there. And so, so whether it's, it's, it's Merkel or it's Putin or it's uh, the president of, of China, right? Uh, the Saudi Arabia guy, the France guy, Marcon, you, you have all these characters, and then right in the middle is, is our character, Trump, right? And so you're like, okay, so what is happening? What's they going to be doing? What are they going to be discussing? The nation's coming together. 
Now, these are more progressive nations. These aren't representations of a lot of third world countries. I understand that and that kind of thing. But when David is mystified and he looks at all the nations, he says, wow, what's the deal? Why is everybody like, not like God and go God's direction? Why is there this pushback happening? Friends, it happened 3,000 years ago and it happens today. Things don't ever change. They will change someday, and we're going to be seeing that. But the nations can come together for all different kinds of reasons. But this was not a coming together of the G20 to talk about Jesus Christ and how he can bring together the whole world. Do you think they sat around and talked about that? No, because that would not be cool. Everybody comes from different persuasions, different belief systems. That's right. What's ringing? Let's talk about it. Let's, let's, Let's discuss the religions of the world. Let's go at it. In fact, if you're ever apprehensive to have that discussion, don't. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then he is not embarrassed to have open discussion about what ultimate truth is. And is that truth found in him or not? You don't have to know all the other religions, but you should not hesitate to dialogue. There's this seeking, there's this longing. There's also, I understand, spiritual warfare, the undercurrent as Satan tries to, to move people and nations in different directions. But where's the coming together to talk about what ultimate spiritual truth and reality is? It did not happen at Osaka this week. And sometimes we wonder, do they sort of conspire together and maybe not blatant ways, but subversive ways to sort of push God to the fringes because we're not quite interested in God being in the middle of all the discussion in the leading of our countries. Just a few hours ago, I don't know if you know this, but uh, President Trump uh, did something historical. He actually met uh, Kim Jong-un at the border the demilitarized zone between South Korea and North Korea. And he was the first acting president of the United States to actually step across the demilitarized zone from South Korea, which is democratic and safe, to North Korea, which is communistic. And, you know, he's trying to build this relationship. And whether it's nuclear arm issues or other kinds of things, the plight of the North Korean people is really bad. We need to pray for the North Koreans. And and maybe God, through some type of diplomacy, could actually open up some doors for not only the gospel to flourish more there, but for people to be lifted up in a humanitarian way. So it was good news that that kind of thing happened just a few hours ago. But sometimes I sit around and go, what's North Korea's problem? Why do they push back so much? Yeah, I, I understand they have this communistic mindset, and this kind of, but there's this pushing back against the things of God. Nothing has changed in all the centuries from when David wrote the psalm. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rule together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. What are they talking about here? What's he talking about? Well, if you're a follower of God this morning, you like, you like God. You think God has come to help you in your life. But the vast majority of people would think that God is one who puts bonds and chains and shackles on people. I don't want to walk with God. I want God in my life. Maybe you say that today because of a journey spiritually been on and you're just checking God out. I don't know. I don't want it. I, I sort of resist it because he's going to control my life. He's going to take me away from all the fun. 
there's things I want to do, and God's going to just you know, put me in a straitjacket, shackle me up. That's the same thing they were saying back then. It's like, hey, listen, God, we're going to rage against him, push back against him, because he puts shackles and chains and bonds on people. David just says here, hey, this is the way the reality is. They're thinking this, but you need to know this. This is key for us. It may be key for you this morning. God is a bondage breaker. He is not a bondage bringer. Have you found that to be true in your life? He is a bondage breaker. He is not a bondage bringer. But the people that are maybe around you in the course of your everyday week, they actually think that God is a bondage bringer. Your testimony needs to be that no, God breaks the shackles. He sets us free. Free to be who we are. Really? Yeah, he does. He does. You know, there's uh, this uh, celebration coming, right, on Thursday. Or maybe you went to the fireworks at Marietta last night, right? Independence Day. We celebrate our freedom, right? I was thinking this week of uh, that Braveheart movie, you know, where Mel Gibson plays the character of uh, uh, Willem Wallace, you know. Freedom! Right, he's, he's there on his deathbed, right? The big guillotine axe is ready to come on him. One last word and the other. Freedom! You know, we're all moved by that, right? We all want freedom. Well, God does bring freedom. But we've twisted freedom around today to think that freedom is the lack of any personal restraint. It's just a, a license to do whatever you want to do. That's what freedom is, man. I don't want any shackles on me. I don't have to be free, man. God, push him away. He's a bondage bringer, man. No, he's not. He made you. He created you. He understands you. He died for you. He believes in you. And God wants to be the bondage breaker, not the bondage bringer that you might think. Freedom is found in Christ. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom is not without personal constraints. You know, I, I learned early on, maybe you've heard me say this before, um, well, I get, I, when's a fish free to be a fish? When it's out of the water? What's the fish go? Hey, I want to get out of the water. I don't have any freedom in here. No, you're going to die outside of the water. Or something like a train. When's a train free to be a train? When it's running on its tracks. You ever have train sets? All right? Maybe one around your Christmas tree. Maybe you were into trains, model trains. I had both kind of thing. And you'd sit there and go, what's wrong with that little locomotive? Why is it not moving? Well, it got one wheel off of the tracks. A train cannot be a train unless it's on the tracks. A fish cannot be a fish unless it's in the water. And a human being cannot be a full human being, fully alive in Christ and to his mission, like we talk about at the awakening, unless that person is in Christ in his fullness. Because God is not a bondage bringer. He is a bondage breaker to set you free. And those constraints, you think, are for your freedom to be who you're made to be. I have a friend and his son here, George and Alex, uh, today from Indiana. We go back to seventh grade and, and uh, come out to visit. Uh, Father-son trip, cool thing. Great to have George and Alex here today. But, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that the difference between Indiana when I moved here and uh, 
California related to housing is there's walls around everybody's backyard here. I'm not really used to that. Even if you're out in some acreage, they got the fence. And I understand now it's for coyotes, and I was hearing coyotes out my window last night, and I understand that, or, or some other kinds of nastier animals than coyotes even. And so you're like, okay, I understand that. But why do we have walls and fences in our backyard? Is it to ruin your joy? There's protection. Maybe it's a security issue. But if you have your child playing in the backyard, and there is a train track right on the back side of that yard... Are you just going to let them go out there and roam and play? No. You're going to say, honey, we need to get a fence. Is that fence to constrain them and ruin them and kill their joy? No. The fence is for their protection so they can have freedom to you just roam and do what you want to do. So in the Midwest, we don't really have those kinds of fences as much. Houses aren't crammed together like they are out here in California, sound that kind of thing. But I'm thinking, okay, so God, are you putting this protective fence around to ruin my joy or to give me freedom and so when you're inside of what the will of god is his moral code his decrees of scripture it's for your freedom it's not to bring bondage to you but david's saying what that's how they're crying out that's how they're scared of god and pushing him off And the nations will conspire one after another. But guess what happens over history? Do those who push away God, do they rise to the top and thrive? Time and time again throughout history, it's proven that those who rage against God, they do so in vain. They do so in vain. Now the next part of this psalm, I I sort of like. I just really do. The one enthroned in heaven. The Lord, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have instilled my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And you might be saying right now, you're sort of sick, Carrie, if you like that. This is what I like about it. There's only three places in all the scripture where it says God laughs. You know, he laughs, right? You've got a personality. God grieves. We understand that. Jesus wept at Lazarus' death, those kinds of things. So all of your emotions, all your personality comes because you're made in the image of God. But we don't see the myrrh of God very much in scripture. But there's three different places that it says that he laughs. C.S. Lewis says we really don't have anything in scripture that reveals the myrrh or the true laughter, enjoyment of God because we just couldn't handle it. It's so pure and awesome. And when we're in heaven face to face, we're going to see the great joy and laughter and myrrh of God. But the three places that the word laugh that's used is in the Psalms. And it's not a laughing like a, a, a joyous laughter. It's it's and it's not even a mocking laughter. You've got to understand God here. He's not sicking back and going, I can't believe you nations that rage and strive and connive against me. It's, it's a laughter like, really? <laughs> You're going to do that again? You're going to push me away? You're going to push me away because you think that I'm going to bring bondage to you and not set you free? <laughs> Who are you kidding? That's just sort of funny. I'm sorry, but that's not true. That's not true of who I am. 
And so it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs with them. The one, catch this, he's enthroned in heaven. He's not on earth in this picture. So he's enthroned in heaven. He's seated high above it all. You know, he's Lord and God over all the earth, but he sits in heaven. He's, do you think that God, when he sees people mock at him and, and he sees what goes on where they shut down uh, the proliferation of faith and trust in him, close churches, tear churches down, push away, connive, uh, allow corruption and immorality, raise up within countries and do different things, including our own. Do you think God starts walking around fretting, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? They're turning against me. Do you think he worries, he scratches his head? Does he think, oh, everything was going pretty good until they got the internet? I don't know what to do now. No. God sits enthroned in the heavens and he laughs. He says, Really? Really, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't want you putting any constraints on our life. We, we don't want to have to deal with morality the way that your word says. And we don't want to have to worship you and honor you. That's, it's, just, it's just not the cool way to go. That's not where, where we're headed. He's like, all right. You can do it in vain. And so he sits in the heavens and he speaks this forth. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath. And sometimes we think, oh, a vengeful, mean God. No, his wrath is just simple justice. He's a pure, holy God, and so he has to deal with imperfection and sin. When his heaven is ushered in, his heaven is not going to be filled with a bunch of sinners. Now, we're all sinners, but the only way that we get in is by having the righteousness of Christ in our life, by letting Jesus be the the leader and the Lord, the one who reigns in our own life. But Jesus, God has to do something with the wickedness of the world, because that's not of his essence who he is. And so he terrifies them with his wrath, his rightful judgment. And then he says this, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Ah, now something's happening with the psalm. It's taking a turn. And it's taking a turn in a prophetic sense. Because The king in Zion, David would have known it as the kings of Jerusalem, but he's saying the king, my king of Zion, the holy hill, Jerusalem, that the Davidic line of kings would give birth to the king, the Messiah, the Christ. And so Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah. It's messianic. And so he begins to position the hope of the nations. In his judgment and the wrath, he says, really, he says, listen, I'm not a bondage bringer, I'm a bondage breaker, and I'm going to bring to you a Messiah. And this Messiah is going to be installed as the king on Zion, and things are going to change. And then in the third stanza, verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession." You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So again, it's not just a psalm of encouragement and challenge for that day and age. It's prophetic not only into the time of Jesus and the disciples, but in our day as well. You are my son. In the earlier version of the NIV, this son word was capitalized, but it, it, it's, it's there in reference, we know, in reflection in the study and cross-referencing to point to Christ. Because no king at that time would have referenced being as a son and the God as the Father. He says, ask of me 
to his anointed one. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. Huh. You want to see where this comes into fulfillment? Another articulation in scripture referencing back to this Psalm 2. Revelation 11:15. the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of the world become his in the end. And it's referencing back to the psalm. Two, you will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. All the mocking that the nations do, that other people do, there's coming a day, there's coming a day when God will say, this is done, I'm over. He sent Christ the first time so he could reign in our lives as Lord and Savior. He is coming a second time and Revelation speaks to this where he will rule over the nations. I want you to pause and think about that for a second. Go back and think about the G20 picture there with all those leaders. Wouldn't it be cool if you just sort of changed that whole picture and there is Jesus Christ and all of his, his, his royalty and his glory when he comes again. As scripture says, on a white horse. I don't know what all that means, right? He comes down from heaven. He establishes his reign. People from every tribe, language, and nation are gathered around the throne. That's our destiny. And that is our leader. That's our Messiah. Not all those broken people that are in the picture that just come and go with 70, 80, maybe 90 years of life, and then there's another one. The nation's raging. No, Jesus is our ultimate supreme leader. And when he comes, he will break the nations with an iron rod. It says it's probably a scepter, but it could be the idea of an, an iron rod. Any of you got clay plot, pots at home? You, you, you grow something in, they're sitting around. If you took a rod to that clay pot, how many strikes would it take? Probably just one. And it would be busted to pieces. And that's the scepter of our King Jesus. And he will break and shatter them to pieces. And that's our hope. And this psalmist, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is foreshadowing and speaking about the prophetic word of when God comes. Through Jesus Christ, the second coming and all nations will be his inheritance, and he will break into pottery all that's going on. There's no demilitarized zone that's going to keep God back from going into any country and establishing the reign of Jesus Christ with that people group. The last stanza, verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. What's he doing here? He's telling the kings, yes, of David's day, but the kings of every generation, including the nation's leaders today. And friends, we are a part of that leadership of all nations. We actually are one of the nations that would push back against God. He is speaking to the Israelites, those kinds of things, and, and all the, the wayward nations of other nations around. America would have been one of those because we were not a part of the Israelite group. But no matter what nation, no matter what rank or position you have, God comes and says to you and I in this psalm that we need to be wise and we need to serve the Lord 
and celebrate his rule with trembling. It says rejoice in his rule in another version. You're like, how do you rejoice and tremble at the same time? Right? But there's something pretty cool in that when you think about it. It's like there is so much rejoicing in the awe and the reverence of who God Almighty is, who Messiah Jesus is, that you're rejoicing in that. But there's this reverential fear that's almost a trembling because of who you stand before and who you serve. So serve the Lord with fear and celebrate with rule and trembling. That's not the kind of fear like, oh, he's going to rule my joy. He's going to put a straitjacket on my shackles, bonds. No, it's awe of who he is and his greatness and all that he's done when he comes to rule the nations. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. And then the last verse in this psalm, kiss his son and he or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, it might seem a little strange to kiss him, but you have to understand in that day and age, a kiss represented submission to royalty. Think in terms of kissing his feet. Kiss him. Submit to him. Take refuge in him. It also has the idea, this kiss of the idea of intimacy. He's not only just the great God out there who runs the universe and controls all things and has all truth. He's also the intimate God who through his spirit said, I can come and move into a congregation on a Sunday morning which sings the song, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place because he can come in an intimate way because he can come to dwell within you. You can have intimacy with this magnificent God, creator, the ruler of all nations. Kiss the Son. Have you kissed the Son? You cannot kiss the Son if you are not willing to submit. You cannot kiss the Son and have intimacy with Him if you don't take concerted effort to know Him and His Word and commune with Him. God has tremendous promises for those of us who seek Him. And they're listed right at the end of this. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son. Affectionately and reverentially submit yourself to the Lord. Take refuge in him and be blessed. The bottom line in that last verse, pretty heavy. Simply says this, defy God and perish. Or surrender to him and be blessed. It's a hard word. It's a hard word for us in this room. It's a hard word for our nation. It's a hard word for your friends and your relatives. But Scripture speaks from one generation to the next. Defy God, and you will perish. It will lead to destruction. But if you surrender, you take refuge in Him and embrace Him, kiss His Son, you will be blessed. God is not a bondage breaker. God, I mean, God is not a bondage bringer. God is a bondage breaker. You will be blessed if you submit. You will find yourself in destruction if you rage and push yourself away from Him. In this week of independence, 
I want to encourage you to find the freedom. The freedom that not, cannot be found in a nation, even of the United States, and any type of national leadership, but the freedom that can be found in Christ. And I want to simply ask you this question. Does God reign in your life? He will reign in the nations, but he needs to reign in your life first. Will you pray with me? Lord, I ask this morning that you would take us as individuals and even as a people, and you would lead us into a place of awe. History repeats itself so much. We think we are in a bad place as a nation, but it's a place this nation and other nations have been in time and time again. The cycle goes around and around, Lord, and you sit enthroned in the heavens and you observe it. May we not be participants in those who shun you and push you away, Lord, who scoffs at you or who conceive with other people how we can stay away from you. But may we be individuals and may we be a nation that pursues true freedom by embracing you and running towards you. Lord, may we understand that you came to set us free and that freedom is found in you, Jesus Christ. I pray here this morning, if there's anyone who has never crossed that line of faith of committing their life to you, that they would choose, even in these moments, even later today, that they would submit, that they'd repent of their sins, that they would turn from indifference and double-mindedness or pushing you away or raging against you, and that they would ask you to come into their life, to reign as Savior and to reign as Lord. And so with those thoughts, friends, if you're in that place today, I just invite you to pray that simple prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I repent of my sins and being indifferent from you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my leader. And from this day forward, I will choose to worship the Anointed One. And the Anointed One, would you please reign supreme in my life for your glory. Amen and amen. Thanks. I'm going to just have the ushers take their places to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings this morning. And uh, you can just come forward and receive those as well as your Connect card. I'm not going to have the, uh, the band come back, I don't think. I wanted to get you out of here a little bit early so you can get your car in line for car wash maybe, right? <laughs>